Welcome to Adult Sunday School. I emphasize adults because today's topic is going to get a little juicy. So no kidding, it may not be appropriate for your children. Um, so please consider that. Um, this is the third of four lessons in a series on the First Corinthians. And uh, this one's very different. I'm not even sure it was a good idea. I'm, uh, I, I think of myself more as a Bible teacher. I don't feel like I'm very confident and competent in uh, engaging with culture, but no one else does it around here, so they throw it to me. Uh, but this is a topic that has come up in our home, and uh, Dave and I talked about this maybe even a year ago, that this would be a good topic. And so as I went and meditated on 1 Corinthians, I just saw so many things that, I, that would address the topic. I thought, well, I'll try to merge these two together. So on one hand, this is not really a 1 Corinthians study. I'll use 1 Corinthians. And on the other hand, typically if I see a, a cultural topic I want to address, I would take all of Scripture. So maybe not limit myself to one book. But in this case, I just think it works. There's enough material in 1 Corinthians that we can really use. So here we are. Um, we will have, be having a seven-minute video. I think I bleeped out all the swearing. It was very hard. You can ask Greg. Because the guys we're going to talk about today are just constantly swearing. But the, t the content is still adult material. A lot of uh, sexually explicit material. I, probably not in the way we usually use sexually explicit. But it's, it's, a, it's adult conversation. So please consider that. But I think it's important. We live in an adult world. And we need to be adults about it. So let's pray as we get into this. Our Father, we pray for wisdom. We pray for humility. We, we say things like we want to be salt and light to this earth. And we have people who are involved in conversations and things that maybe aren't comfortable for a lot of us. It's new for a lot of us and we can easily write this off. We pray you wouldn't let us do that. We pray that we would become all things for all men. Uh, including those who are in this, the world of the manosphere. So help us to know how to be light and salt for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So the manosphere, maybe that brings, flashes back to uh, the group we used to have, the man beer food. I don't know, what is this word manosphere? So either you are very aware of these people or you've never heard of them. Judy, I will give you $1,000 if you know the people we're talking about today. No way. So what is the Manosphere? It's a collection of online men's blogs and video blogs devoted to men's issues in both positive advice, but also very reactive, defensive to a world they perceive as hostile to men and to masculinity. You could possibly date its origins to 2009 with a dating tactics book that was called The Game by Neil Strauss. From that grew a community of men around 2012-2013 timeframe, discussing their perceptions of being disaffected, blamed for everything, and left out of the cultural conversation. They use the term red pill, it's used in lots of ways. Basically it means to liberate oneself from the lies of society. In this case, the lies that it tells about men, especially in the light of excess, the excesses of feminism and the Me Too movement more recently. They claim negative characterizations of women in books and films pale in comparison to those of men. It is considered much ruder to criticize women or hold them to standards than is true for men. 
In response, they rely heavily on evolutionary psychology in what they promote about intersexual dynamics, however bitter, bitter that may seem to the world. So they're very countercultural. The culture is having this conversation, this drift, that is being much softer towards women. Uh, and these guys say, we've gone too far, and they're reacting against it. That's essentially what they are. So who are the players in this game? Well, there's quite a few. You're going to see quite a few in the video compilation we put together. The, mo the biggest name by far these days in the last few years is Andrew Tate. If you've heard about, if you've not aware of this world, you might have heard him on the news because he's up, he's living in house arrest in Romania up on lots of charges, prostitution, etc. And then there's a bunch of other guys that are all in that same orb and they all kind of interrelate. All the original guys from like 10 years ago are gone. And so these are more of the recent guys. Then there's other people who are a little on the, on the, on the circle. They don't really, they're not in the manosphere, but they, they have them on their shows and they talk about it and they seem quite sympathetic. Some big names out there, actually. Probably the biggest name of influence would be Joe Rogan. And then you have one unique guy who's not really in there, but his words are used by the manosphere uh, to give him a lot of credibility, a lot of statistical scientific rigor, and that's Dr. Jordan Peterson, which I'm sure even more of you would have heard of. He's not really like them. His personality is completely different. He has different pursuits. His personal life is different. Um, it, for an old guy like me, there's a lot more credibility than these other guys. But th his research is used and is very important to these guys. And he's very sympathetic with what they're doing. So Andrew Tate will appeal, appeal to someone like my son, where uh, Jordan Peterson will appeal to me. So we're going to focus on the Andrew Tates, the, the manosphere itself. But realize that any, any celebrity that's out there who's not a Christian, but, it, but appeals to you, they appeal to your nature, we've got to be aware of, right? We've got to critically think about what they say. Greg, we're ready to hit it. This is seven minutes, so enjoy. I would decide not to cheat because I decide. However, I would not see my infidelity as nearly anywhere near even 1% as disgusting as female infidelity because female infidelity involves emotion. You will not sleep with a man you don't like. I can sleep with a woman I don't like. It's completely different. What do you say to young men who come to you for advice? You feel lost. You don't really know where they fit into society. I say that life as a man is exceptionally difficult. I say the most beautiful and the most terrifying thing about being a man is you're born without value. Society doesn't care about you. You're only going to be cared about based on how useful you are. You have the chance to build yourself up and become a superhero if you're prepared to do the hard work and be indefatigable enough to never quit. But if you're going to stand around and wait for a handout, nobody's going to ever respect you. And I think that a lot of people have forgotten about how difficult and how competitive it is as a man. We're always in constant competition with each other. And it's your duty as a man to stand up and say, I want to be as important and strong and good-hearted and God-fearing as possible, and I need to work hard to achieve those things. And are a valuable commodity. Beauty, this is the thing. Beauty is a commodity. They, it's not fair that- But it's born, always been a commodity. But it's always been a commodity. So I see this all the time from like red pill guys. They'll say like, oh, you know, a, a billionaire is dating some 19-year-old bimbo. I said, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, that 19-year-old bimbo is just as valuable as that billionaire. 
It may not be fair. She may have got it easy, and we may not like to admit it, but she got the genetic gifts that make her just as valuable as Mr. Rich Guy. And this is the reality of, of, the, of the world. So beauty is absolutely a commodity. And, and for every commodity, there has to be an exchange. What can you offer in exchange? People think that Andrew Tate is a high-value man, but I wouldn't consider him to be a high-value man. So if he was to co-sign me as a high-value woman, it would mean nothing to me because I don't see him in that light. Okay. Okay. Um, Hurrah! Fair, fair uh, assessment, but uh, this is where I disagree with you. Being high-value doesn't necessarily deal with morality. Does he have status? Does he have respect from peers? Does he have respect? I mean, in his case, he has respect worldwide. He has financial success, right? We could take it a step further. Trained martial artist, four-time kickboxing world champion. Yep. On paper, he's absolutely high value. Yep. Now, um, and any woman that gets with him is going to acquire the Tate last name and be high value as a byproduct of it. So though he might not be your cup of tea, it's pretty irrefutable that he is a high value. You viewed sex just for childbearing. I could see how you'd want a virgin. That's why virginity was and has been valued, is because in the past there weren't DNA tests, something that women have a hard time empathizing with because it can never ever happen to you biologically. It is one of the biggest L's a guy can take in his life to think you're raising a child that's yours and you find out it's not. Not only are you not raising your son or your daughter, you've just discovered infidelity. That is so brutally crushing for men and it happens. Against men. More violence against there's women. Another reason. Yes, no, another reason. Not. Statistically you speaking, men are way died. more likely to yeah, be shot, to be stabbed, to, to be assaulted. You know what women are more likely to be? They're more likely to be stalked. No, they're more likely to be. Uh, you know why? Also, they're more likely to be essayed, and they're more likely to be stalked. And they're only more likely to be S8 if you don't count the prison population. Men do not men. speak up about those things because then they it makes them feel weird. And, it's, and yes. then it's other men yes. that are it's other men that are that are making other men feel like they can't uh, that they can't. It's speak other up. men. That's are, the, yes, it is. Are it's they? toxic masculinity. Why don't men want to speak up because they're afraid of getting judged by other men? My mom no, used to be. And yes, they yeah. are. No, yes, they are. They're afraid of being judged by women. And as she said before, it begins a toxic relationship. I wasn't healthy. I wasn't happy. So I left. Do you think that was a smart decision to leave that man? Yeah. How long absolutely. were you together? Three years. And Hard. he's a millionaire? Yeah. Attractive? Yeah. Successful? Yeah. Okay. What do you think is more rare? Him or you? Me. That's Always. your problem. In what well, way? She's problem. a fashion designer, though. Like, how many fashion, fashion designers compared to a self-made millionaire? Are you I serious? I don't care about the millions. I don't care about the millions. So females are hypergamous, which means they'll mate across and up hierarchies, uh, socioeconomic hierarchy, but competence hierarchy is really at the bottom of it. And so when you set up a situation where there's far more women than there are men in a given domain, say, where mate selection can take place, most of the men still don't do very well because most of them are still rejected by women. But a small minority of men do extraordinarily well if you think well means unlimited sexual access. And so what's happening in the universities is that a small minority of men have sexual carte blanche in some sense. And most men are in the same position that most young men are always in, which is they're in a state where they're not particularly desirable. to Okay to be a man. It's not okay. It's necessary. What the hell are we going to do without men? You look around the city here, you see all these buildings go up. These men, they're doing impossible things. They're under the streets. 
working on the sewers, they're up on the power lines in the storms and the, and the rain. They're keeping this impossible infrastructure functioning, this thing that works in a miraculous manner. They work themselves to death. And often, literally, the gratitude for that is sorely lacking, especially among the people who should be most grateful. You see university professors, especially of the social justice bent, they take everything they have for granted, failing to understand entirely that there's a massive infrastructure of unbelievably hard-working, solidly laboring, working-class men breaking themselves in half on a regular basis, making sure that everything that always breaks works. 31. And your, your ex-husband did what? He's a doctor. He's a psychiatrist. And how long ago were you married? Up until three years ago. Uh, how much older was your husband than you? <sighs> we'll say 35 years. So he's 53? Currently, yes. Why'd y'all divorce? My husband got sick with cancer, and that changed him, and it changed the dynamics of our marriage. Is he in remission? Yes, he is. And who filed for divorce? I did. Why? He became mentally, emotionally, and financially abusive. He took care of you just fine up until he got sick. Correct. And then when he was fighting for his life, you became a snowflake. Did you have to work when you were married? No, but I no, chose you didn't have to. to. No, no, no. You chose, but you didn't pay no real bills. You didn't have no skills. Knock it off. I'm gonna be honest, ma'am. This is a whole mess. Though even the way you're talking, it just sounds like, ugh. And how tall are you? I'm 5'4". How much do you weigh? 180. Goodbye. All right. Well, <laughs> there's no way to do justice even in seven minutes of what's out there. Now we had to be highly selective on what we chose and um, for the swearing, but also just things I wanna talk about. I don't claim that this is representative. I know people who have listened to some of the more horrific things you didn't hear. There's some pretty nasty things these guys believe and teach and do in their lives. So I don't, I probably painted with maybe a bit of a rosy picture. But I think it's important because these are the things for the people we want to converse with. This is your neighbor. This is your, your son and your grandson. These are the people to converse with. This is the impression they're getting. I'm guessing there was a lot in there that you actually really agreed with. And so it can suck you in. And, and it's entertaining. I mean, they bring on these stupid women and make them look bad and feel bad. So it's very entertaining. And so it's not really a fair conversation. It's not a serious conversation. Maybe with Peterson it is. So my point is just to get a sample of what's out there. This is what young people are listening to and watching daily, like all the time. So if this is a world that you just find, this is weird, it's disgusting. Well, welcome to the world that you're to reach. So. I don't know if you need to go research. I'll warn you a little bit on what you're going to find, but just realize this stuff is out there. I, I see it a bit like stand-up comedy. Stand-up comics are, are the people who are willing to say the kind of the, the things you're not supposed to talk about, but everyone knows to be true, but you're just not allowed to talk about it. So you go to a stand-up comic and you kind of get this relief, like, oh, finally somebody can say the obvious things. I get that sense talking to these guys and, or listening to them. I obviously don't talk to them. Some of the things they say are going to be very intuitively true and very unpopular in modern society. There are two groups of guys that really listen to these guys in general. The first ones are the obvious. They're the haves. They're the guys who see these guys as really attractive. I want to be that, so I'm going to listen and follow what they say. 
I'm going to go amass a bunch of wealth. I'm going to become a millionaire. I'm going to start being the player. I'm going to start using these tactics on dating and pickup lines and, and showing a lot of confidence. A lot of stats show that, or at least the perception is, is that the top 20% of men have 80% of the sex. This 20-80 rule. That's a lot. I don't know what the actual numbers are. I don't think we need to get into arguing about statistics, right? We don't need to engage with them. The thing is, there's a perception that you're dealing with people who have a perception. So that's where you're going to enter that conversation with them. You don't need to fight it out on what's true, which of these stats are true or not. We want to get to their hearts, right? That's the whole point. So the other group that you wouldn't necessarily think of is that bottom 80% of men, the have-nots. A lot of them are incels, if you're not familiar with that term, involuntary celibate. It's hugely growing in our culture. People are having far less sex today than they used to. Now, in a Christian context, we might think that's a good thing, right? But it's not, because there's a lot of bad stuff behind that. Why are they not having sex? But basically, this group, even though you would think they would hate these guys, they love this because this gives them an excuse for their lives. This gives them an excuse for why women don't care about them because they don't have status. And, well, then I'm not going to care about women. I'm not going to care about the dating. I've got the internet for my sexual pleasure. Why do I need to date? So you're creating the, this huge group of men. I'm, I'm mainly talking about men today who are going to hide away, um, play their video games, and not build meaningful relationships in their life. But they watch these guys and they love it. All right, so here's some of the major claims. Three of them I'll, I'll mention. You've heard a lot about here. And I'm sorry for those who didn't even understand half of the language that was being used there. The first thing they'll do is they talk about this high value. What does high value mean? There's high value men and high value women. That basically dating is a marketplace and you're a commodity in that marketplace. For men, their value is based on their wealth, their status, and their competence. For women, their value is based on purity, youth, and traditional submissiveness. So for what that basically means is women have their peak value in their young 20s. But men around 35 years old. So there's a lot of much older men, much younger women. And of course, sorry ladies, you're done with your young 20s, it's all downhill from there. So you better have locked in a nice, rich, stable man who wants to have babies, and then you're there. But by the way, he's gonna keep looking for the young 20s, right? You get older, you'll raise kids, he's gonna support you, but he is not gonna be faithful to you. And that's how it works. He's worked his life to amass his wealth, and he's high value. He deserves it. That's the way it is. That's the way life is. These men want traditional women. They call them trad wives. If you ever go online, you hear the term trad wife. This term body count. It's kind of weird. Body count used to mean like people you would kill, right? Well, now body count is you're out conquesting, you're slain. It's how many sexual encounters you've had. And so a lot of these conversations, they'll say, hey, what's your body count? What's your body count? It's, it's a little sick. Most, they would claim that most women like bad boys, right? So you don't, don't, don't listen to these church people at Spring Meadows, how they want to raise their sons and their daughters. The bottom line is women want bad boys. Society mocks male virgins. The message is get laid, get paid. The third one is that marriage is a losing proposition for a high-value man. And if you think about it, you've got to be a little honest, right? The family courts are stacked against them. 
women initiate most divorces. A woman who has done nothing as far as amassing wealth, this is their perception again, uh, is going to get half of his stuff, right? And then he's never going to get to see his kids. Why would they ever enter these marriages? Th that's their perception. They say the big D, divorce, is, is a big L. It's a loss for man. Again, it's this very commoditized, quantitative way of looking at relationships and the world. Now, I'm not talking today about Tate's personal life, his arrests, and all that stuff. I just want to deal with the things that he has said and claims. There's a lot in my research that goes into the history of how we got here as a society. Right? If you think about a few hundred years ago, Men had to be the ones out working. Women had to be the ones at home for a host of reasons. That is less necessary now. You could say in some ways, women need men less, right, than they did. And, and there's less of a societal pressure for men to be monogamous and to stay with their families. And then another area that was way new to me, I didn't know I was going to get into it, but now I'm kind of fascinated, is concerns about the feminization of the church. That should throw a grenade in there. To the point that the church is being feminized, whatever that means, just realize if that's true, as we go preach the gospel to men, they come in our services and in our groups. If they feel they can't be masculine in their circles, it's going to repel them. And a lot of stats bear out how many women are in church versus men in church. That's in general. I don't know how it is in reform circles. All right, so why do we want to engage with this group? You might be tempted to just shut it off. What are these freaks out there? Don't touch me. Well, there's lots of reasons. Number one, we saw in chapter five a couple weeks ago that there, there's a concern about um, sexual immorality in the church, and he's focusing on the church. I'm not talking about the world. If I'm talking about the world, to separate from the world, you, you would have to go outside of the world. That's not possible. And we're not called to that. So you've got to hold people to different standards, right? There might be some really disgusting things that your neighbors and your friends believe and say and do. And you can't come with the same uh, expectations for morality and, and for their wisdom. So show some, show some grace there. We do want to be culturally converse, conversant for the gospel. We, we looked at this last week. We're going to become all things for all people. Well, that's not just Jew and Gentile. That's not just your attitude to the law. That means potentially areas like this. Now, you have to know yourself, right? You have to know if you're a strong or weak in this area. If you go online and start researching these guys, just be ready what you're going to get yourself into, right? So know yourself. The most important thing I think I want to say today is this next one. Uh, you can turn there, but 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, so this is essentially a reference to what we understand as the fall, right? We, we have Adam as our first head. We, we are all sons and daughters of Adam, right? We are naturally in the physical human lineage of Adam. And those of us in Christ are now united with Christ. We have a new Adam. 
we have the perfect Adam, the perfect man, who came to fulfill what Adam, the first Adam, failed in. And so we have these two realities. And so whenever you hear the word natural, I do this all the time. Every time I hear someone say, well, that's just, it's just natural. You've got to think, wait a minute. What natural are we talking about? Are we talking about a natural that this is how God, in this sense, made men and women? This is the way God intended it to be? It's natural in that sense? Or is it natural in the sense that it's, it's a result of the fall? It, it comes, it's, things have been twisted. So in the fall, what happened was, was not a complete blotting out of God's image, right? Your, your unbelieving neighbor has the image of God in them. And it's, I, I think of it almost like that image of God is trying to get out, right? But it's in a cage. The, the image of God through the fall has been twisted and marred and warped. It hasn't been completely blotted out. So as you engage with the worlds and the world's philosophies, this is the challenge. You can't just discount everything they have to say. They are reflecting God's image to you, and it takes us to discern, wow, is that, is that the image of God, or is that the result of the fall talking right now? My own feelings. I'll see things that feel natural, feels natural to me. Now, is that, is that what God originally created, or is that the way my inner being is twisted and marred from the fall? Just as an example for what they say. On the one hand, they'll say, what's well, very natural for men to be the initiators and the leaders in a relationship. Okay, that doesn't strike us as so bad. It's very natural that men would have multiple sexual partners. Men do desire multiple sexual partners. I hate to break it to you. That is a reality. That is natural for men. But is that a result? Is that how God intended it? Or the result of the fall? That's the stuff to wrestle with. So if they say, if they say something like that that is sinful and is a problem, don't discount the fact of their feelings that it's natural. As one political commentator says it, this group, they identify real problems, but they don't have the right solutions. And I think that's a really good summary of these guys. They identify some real problems, so don't just discount them so fast. They're saying things that are true. And if you just swipe them away, your son is gonna listen to these guys and say, but wait a minute, that was true what he just said. And you, you don't even wanna have the conversation. They're gonna listen to more and more and more, and they're not gonna be able to discern everything that they're listening to. Another, uh, uh, here's a good example. Tate will say things like, I want, I want men to become disciplined, to become as competent and capable as healthy. He's really into his health. Those are all good things, right? And it sounds like, wow, I would love for my son to listen to someone like that and get his life in order. Kind of a Jordan Peterson type of thing. Get your room in order. But then he'll come out and say, well, I have this, PhD course where I teach men, and PhD stands for pimps and hoes. It's just off the reservation, right? And it can just turn like that in a conversation. One thing the depravity of man and the fall of man tells us is that both men and women can be toxic. Both men and women can be abusive. It just takes different forms. Maybe one is easier to see. Maybe one is easier to talk about in society. But we should never raise women above men, just like we should never raise men above women. Everyone needs to be pastored. Everyone needs to be rebuked. Everyone needs to be given the gospel. So when you, when you hear things that are true by men you despise, be careful how you talk about it and how you, how you throw it away. Accept and acknowledge things that are true, no matter who says them, or you'll lose credibility. 
I won't go into chapters one and two verses there, but you could be the smartest evolutionary psychologist or anthropologist or a business entrepreneur, have a lot of world cred, right? You can, you can, and you a legitimately smart person, but you don't have the wisdom of God. We have that wisdom. You could be a pretty dumb person in this room. Paul said the Corinthians were that way, right? You weren't very wise. You weren't very noble. But you have the wisdom of God. It's been revealed to you. You have something these people don't have. With all the allure, all the money, all the smarts, you have a word of God that they need. So now it's just how do you get it there? All right. On to number three there in your handout. Each of these is a whole class or series on its own. So I'm sorry, it's just going to be a bit of an introduction to each of these. The first, I want to start with some things that I think are positive about what the Manosphere talks about. And I think Paul would acknowledge and that we as Christians should acknowledge. Chapter 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Now I am going to dodge all the details here. (laughs) But we have to admit, if that passage rubs you wrong, some of what rubs you wrong about what they say is actually God's truth. I'm not going to try to say, I'm four and a half hours into a six and a half hour video on head coverings right now. So it's a big topic. There's a lot of faithful scholarship on what exactly this passage means, but we must admit at least it's very clear that the distinction of sex, the distinction of genders, is God's truth, right? We cannot back away from that truth. And that can be hard to do today. It can be hard to do to say that and then try to disentangle what we've heard here. And it's not just that they're different. They're different in their created purpose. It isn't just a matter of God was arbitrarily setting roles, right? Well, I'll have men do this and women do this. No, it's rooted in their creation. Woman was made for man. Woman was made from man. I don't know what it means because of the angels, but that doesn't sound cultural to me. There's something that is outside of culture. Maybe there's some cultural aspects in 1 Corinthians. We can have that conversation later. But something is not cultural. Something abides and remains. And if you don't know what that is from a, from a biblical standpoint, you're going to drift with the cultural norms like everybody else. And as you do that, men who find it very intuitive that there's a difference and that men would have leadership or whatever they believe, you're going you're gonna to sound like more like the world to them, and they're going to write you off. And then your sons and your neighbors are gonna drift this direction, and they're gonna be their catechizers and their teachers and their disciplers instead of the word of God. So be very, very resistant in some ways. Well, resistant might be wrong. Be critical of cultural norms, right? We've gotta analyze everything by the word of God. 
One Christian writer, Aaron Rain, says this, Tate is willing to embrace unpopular but directionally corrective views, such as the substantive complementary of the sexes. His specific claims may not be all accurate, but his idea that there are in general significant differences between the sexes and that their relationship is complementary is more true than the official view of society, that all gender differences are social constructs and that sexes are infinitely plastic and malleable. So we too want to be courageous to stand against cultural norms when it's accurate and when it makes sense. All right, chapter seven. Boy, we could spend three classes on chapter seven alone. A few years ago, we did go through chapter seven a, a little more in depth when we talked about singleness. Another prop for these guys is those who marry will have worldly troubles. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So on the good side, the manosphere is right. Uh, they, they do say some good things about the responsibility of husbands and fathers. So even though the guy's out there sleeping with the next 20-year-old, right, he is very committed that his, his woman, his wife, will never have to work again. He will provide for her, for any children that are in there, for her whole family. And they're very big on spending it. They're, they're honest in that sense. They recognize real responsibilities for married men and for fathers. Problem is, it's not very relational. It's very transactional, as you can hear, right? It's, it's, not, quite, it's not quite what Paul meant, right? He says that the goal is undivided devotion to the Lord. So, it's not a matter of demanding your rights and your freedom and exalting your self-pleasure, right? It's, it's not your own desires. What Paul is talking about, whether you're married or you're single, it's all about devotion to the Lord. How can I use these 80 to 90 years on li in, in life that I have on earth, right? Completely different focus, completely different master in their lives. Is it going to be God or is it going to be myself? Uh, letter C there. Man, I wish we had time to go through chapter 7. We need a good biblical view of sex and marriage. I'm not going to read the, the passages there. I'll just talk about them just for time. A couple things I see here. Number one, the Bible has some real talk about sexual temptations, right? If you burn with passion, then marry. If you do abstain for a season as a couple, then come together because I don't want you to be tempted by the devil. Paul is pretty open and blunt and, and real about sexual temptation. And we have to be as well. If you shy from this conversation, at the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, we are, we're seeding the ground to the world, to the manosphere. If you can't have some blunt, honest conversation with your friends and your children, um, then the world's going to get them. They want to talk about these things. They need to talk about these things. It's very practical. Like, take a cold shower. That's a good practical thing. Paul would say amen to that, right? We don't want to be—we talked uh, in the first week about the different factions in Corinth. Some of, the, some of the guys in Corinth were these super spiritual guys, right? They didn't need authority. They don't—the physical body is not that important. It's all about the spiritual, right? The Gnostic heresy. Well, we, we need to be real. We don't want to be super spiritual. We need to know our physical bodies. We need to know ourselves. 
So that's, that's good. These guys are real about sexual temptation. They're being honest about their natural desires and feelings. We should encourage that, actually. But on the other hand, they don't get it. They don't understand. I mean, Paul is very clear about monogamy, right? Eat, let each husband have his own wife and let each wife have her own husband. There is no debate from a New Testament perspective. God calls us to monogamy. Whatever your feelings are, if you want to have multiple sexual partners, that's not something you're allowed to do. That's not, and that's not just God being cruel. That's not good for you. That's not what marriage is intended to be. There's something much bigger in marriage than that. So monogamy is, is clearly what the scriptures call us to. The other thing is mutuality. Very interesting verse there that um, the woman's body, the woman does not have authority over her own body. That sounds a lot like these guys. Neither does the husband have authority over his body, right? Very mutual. I don't think the chapter 11, chapter 14 gender differences would have been a shock to the New Testament world. I think a verse like this would have been. Gender differences, everyone knows that, right? But the fact that women are being elevated to a mutual partner in the relationship, that's huge. That's groundbreaking. And these guys need to hear that. We need to hear that. The body count <laughs> does matter for men and women. Maybe you can make a plausible argument from the evolutionary psychology standpoint or whatever that it matters more that women sleep around the men. I'll have that conversation. It's actually one of my questions. God calls you <laughs> to a body count of zero or one, right? That's the intent, right? Unless you're married twice. Okay. And then marriage is an act of faith. In verse 39, he says, to marry someone in the Lord. You're free to marry whoever you want, only in the Lord. And there's no way, there's no other way to say it. I, I get the stats that these guys throw out. I mean, I can't really argue with them. If, if they don't care about the Bible, marriage does not look like a, a, a win for guys. It's a risky business. So to a Christian, I'd say it is an act of faith. <laughs> Find a woman who is under the authority of God and God's word and sees her that way. And it's an act of faith. Don't have separate bank accounts. Don't have a prenup. Maybe you could argue in certain situations. I don't know. If you're going to be one with this woman, you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be open. It is an act of faith. There's no doubt about it. All right, letter D there. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, there's a lot in 1 Corinthians about the emphasis on the physical. Don't, don't divorce the physical and the spiritual. Even when we come to the Lord's table, we're not going to divorce those things. And again, there's a lot of deep theology here. I don't even think I understand it all. But somehow what we do with our bodies has great, deep spiritual significance. You're not just rubbing body parts together. I mean, that, that is the world's view. Like, who cares? Like, some of the, the girls on these shows, they'll talk about body count. Why do you care about my body count? Like, it, they just don't think there's any effect to them. Even science would talk about the, the emotional bonding that takes place, the endorphins that are sent out. Like, it does matter. Even the world could, should be able to see that. But we see it as even more. You're becoming one with them. You're becoming one with the prostitute. Whatever that means, there's going to be deep, lasting effects when that happens. 
right? It's, it's, it's high stakes. Biblical masculinity. In chapter 16, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Again, this deserves opening up much more. What all does biblical masculinity tell? I mean, there's, there's some great stuff out there. There's something about being strong, having resolve, and yet it's motivated by love. This might help us start to unravel a little bit. What does it really mean to be masculine in a godly sense, but not be in a wrong sense, if you call it toxic or whatever you call it? There's a lot to be said there. Notice women, you're part of who Paul's talking to. Paul is telling you to act like men, just like I'm told to be the bride of Christ and treat myself that way. So he's not just teaching the men here. There's something about what it means to be a man that is natural in the good sense to a man, the masculine, that we are to be as individual Christians and as a church. We are to be strong and yet motivated by love. That's what you don't see a lot of these guys. They say a lot of good things about the strength and the competence. How would we know what love is? Well, we turn to chapter 13, right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Maybe they do well on uh, not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth. There's some truth that they get right, and they're willing to stand up for it. But you don't see anything of patience and kindness the, the envying and boasting just, I mean, that's part of what it means to be a man for these guys. The, the confidence, it turns into an arrogance and a boasting. They're boasting about their wealth. They're boasting about how many women they have. It's very arrogant. It's very rude. The way they treat these, I got to be honest, sometimes I laugh and it's, it's kind of funny, but the, the way they treat these women on these sets is, is rude. It's not in any loving way. They're very childish. It doesn't seem like they've grown up to be a man, a real man, the way Paul would define it, the way that God would define it in the scriptures. And the last verse I have there, always important in a topic like this, in any topic. Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of you are carrying around incredible guilt about your own body count, your own past, the way you've treated your wives, the way you've treated your husbands. You, you can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> there's not a lot of sense of forgiveness in these guys. Like, goodbye. Like, you're done. Your life's over. You screwed up in your 20s, your 30s. You might as well pack it in, right? That's not what the gospel says. There's always hope. <laughs> there's always a future. There's always a way to be washed, a, a, a spiritual virgin, if you like. Will there be consequences in your life? Very possibly. 
There's, God doesn't promise to remove those physical, temporal consequences. But he doesn't guarantee them either. Right? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is not in our history on display for the world to look at and to judge us by. Thankfully, we don't have time for questions. <laughs> I have tons and tons of things to say on each of these. But this would be, these would be great discussion questions. Read through these. How would you answer these? If anyone wants my own thoughts or some of my research, please come talk to me. Kind of a weird study, but I, I hope it's a challenge. I hope it's, it's an introduction of things to think about. Let us have confidence in the Bible, that it speaks to the things of the world that we need to be said. Let us have confidence in our Savior. Thank God for a Savior. Let's have compassion on those around us, even the people that we can't stand, the obnoxious people around us. Let's, let's seek to have conversations with them. I know the women went through the book Tactics last, this last year. Excellent book. There's lots of ways that uh, we can be helped in having these conversations. But you have the wisdom of God. You have the revelation of God. If you don't know this stuff, just be humble, be honest, preach the gospel in any way you can. Build relationships so you can share that gospel in a meaningful way. Let's pray. Our Father, we have only scratched the surface. We pray that we would be primed now to, uh, to invite you into our lives in a more full way, to push us to limits. We would ask for opportunities to have these conversations, and that may not be comfortable to think about. Help us to organize our weekly schedules. Help us to carve out time for our neighbors, to have coffee, to sit down, to take hours to build relationships and give us the wisdom right when we need it in that moment. Help us not to look like we're loving our neighbors, but to truly love them and help them to see that love, that genuine concern for their souls and their lives. And yet, help us to know how to do that without wavering from the truth. We thank you for Jesus and the gospel. That's who we want to worship today and celebrate today. So thank you for your word that we will hear more fully. Thank you for uh, music and songs you've given us that we, we as one people can come to you and lift up our voices of praise. Thank you for the Lord's Supper we get to uh, participate in today. Help us to know what th that mysterious union of the physical and the spiritual and receive the gospel through it. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.